Continuing retrospective on the Lee Ditko Spider-Man run from the early 60s continues with issue 29, Never Step on a Scorpion. This is an interesting issue in that it was never reprinted, either in Marvel Tales, any annuals, or the British reprint magazine Spider-Man Comics Weekly, until Marvel Tales 168 in 1984. How did an issue of one of the most celebrated runs in the history of comics go unreprinted for nearly two decades? The letters page to Marvel Tales issue 168 had the answer, and many thanks to Supermates host Chris Franklin for a scan of the text. On an editorial on the letters page, it's revealed that, for whatever reason, Amazing Spider-Man issue 29 had no proofs taken of it, which is why it was never reprinted. The text piece continues, This time Marvel resolved that it would not be passed by. The problem? How to print a story that they had no art from. The solution? First, Marvel procured a copy of the original printed comic from one of the local comic book stores. The trick now was to get usable photostats from that comic, so they sent the magazine up to Owen McCarran, an advertiser up in Canada and a writer and artist on the old Marvel Fun and Games mag. He was able to make photostats using a special panchromatic film that took out most of the colour from the pages. He had to make two different sets of stats at different settings, one for the art and one for the lettering. So now Marvel had the stats, but they're not quite good enough to print from yet. So so, the Ace Production Department that worked at Marvel at the time was set upon fixing any blotchy lettering. Mike Higgins, who at that point was assistant editor Mike Carlin, was a handyman with a brush, and he touched up the art where the colour hadn't quite all dropped out, labouring to remain faithful to Ditko's classic line. The corrected lettering was pasted onto the art, and voila! The one early Spider-Man comic that had never been reprinted was available again. Comics historians, collectors, and just plain fanatics can rest easy. The best part is, if Marvel ever wanted to reprint this magazine again, they had photostats. This was quite an interesting story in how they had to go about getting the photostats for the comic back in those days. As we've moved forward with technology, getting a copy of Amazing Spider-Man 29 for reprinting nowadays would be very simple. Just buy a copy of the magazine and scan it. Back then it wasn't so easy though, and we appreciated the efforts of the people involved in Marvel Tales who went to all the trouble to make sure that we got to read Never Step on a Scorpion. The issue itself has a cover that wouldn't have looked out of place in Amazing Spider-Man number 1. The Scorpion and Spider-Man duke it out in the sea, or what looks like the sea. The Scorpion bashes Spidey with his tail and Spider-Man tries hard to evade this tactic. There's very little copy to mar the art other than whatever you do. Wherever you go, never step on a scorpion. On the splash page, this title is augmented with the subtitle, Oh, you think it's easy coming up with titles like this? On the splash, J. Jonah Jameson cowers as Spider-Man and the Scorpion fight in his office, and off is devastated by the battle. The credits for this and all other issues are writing and editing Stan Lee, with plotting and drawing by Steve Ditko. The opening is quite nondescript, as befits the more soap opera nature of the strip. Peter finds his clothes are getting a little tight and decides to go shopping to buy new ones. He's been dressing a little more adventurously in recent issues, and this may be Lee and Ditko acknowledging letter writers' criticisms that Peter didn't dress like any teenager they knew. Doing this cleans out his bank account. But suddenly, on a whim, he decides to not go shopping and instead drops by the bugle to talk to Betty. 
I question a relationship that seems to take place entirely at work, but this was Peter and Betty all over. We also learn here that the prison guards have been incredibly stupid and allowed the Scorpion to wear his costume in his cell. To nobody's surprise, he breaks out, vowing vengeance on J. Jonah Jameson and Spider-Man. This was always one of the more interesting aspects of the Scorpion for me as a reader, that he hated Jonah more than he hated Spider-Man, putting Spidey in the unenviable position of having to save the man who was responsible for more of his misery than anyone else. It also puts Jonah in the position of having to rely on Spider-Man to save him. This kind of irony was bread and butter to Lee and Ditko, and both of them laid it on pretty thick. At the bugle, Jonah is informed by the police of the Scorpion's escape, and that, for whatever reason, the Scorpion has been threatening Jonah's life all the time he's been in prison. Peter is, of course, here to hear all this, as he's just popped by to ask Betty out, but Ned leads his back and cock-blocking him. This is a far more acerbic Peter than the last time Ned was in town. I never bought how accepting Peter was of Ned, so here Peter burly hiding his contempt was quite satisfying. Peter's remarks are remarkably barbed and almost completely dismissive of Ned, and it's a nice reminder that Peter could have a really acid tongue on occasion. Jonah, meanwhile, is sweating bullets at the idea of the Scorpion's escape, although he tries to deny any knowledge of why the Scorpion would target him, and refuses police protection. Again, some interesting character beats here. Remember, from Amazing Spider-Man issue 20, nobody knows Jonah had anything to do with the creation of the Scorpion, except those two, so Jonah's fear is palpable. Also of note, Foswell is reporting to Jonah with two different stories about the theft of scientific equipment and a series of cat burglaries. Ditko was handling the plotting, so he must have made a note to Stan about this dialogue which sets up upcoming stories. It was very rare of comics of this time to do this, but Ditko has been laying the foundations of future events for quite a while. Spider-Man decides to swing around for a bit and attract the Scorpion's attention, and whilst this does indeed work, it backfires. The Scorpion decides that if Spider-Man is here, then Jonah is all alone. Jonah, meanwhile, has published an edition of the Bugle flat out accusing Spider-Man and the Scorpion of being allies. He hopes this will bring Spider-Man running to protect him to prove his innocence. Jonah really is an utter scumbag by this point in the history of the strip, with few redeeming features. He's manipulating a man into fighting for him because he's too cowardly to admit to his mistakes, and even abusing his position to do so. Jonah's never been above stretching the truth to sell a paper, but at least in those other cases he believed Spider-Man to be in league with Elektra. Here, he knows what he's publishing is an outright fabrication and pure self-interest, rather than even pretending to be the news. Which probably makes him a more realistic example of a tabloid newspaper owner. Spider-Man has figured out his own stupidity and races to the Daily Bugle just as the Scorpion attacks Jonah. What follows is some pretty good close-quarters combat. Spider-Man, never at his best in cramped situations, tries desperately to avoid the Scorpion's tail, only to come worse off. There's a really funny beat where Spidey, angered by Ned Leeds protecting Betty and advising him to avoid the Scorpion's tail, storms in, fists clenched, and in a perfect hero moment, he comes flying into the next panel, smashing into the wall, thanks to the Scorpion's tail. I told you, starts Ned. Ah, shut up, retorts our normally loquacious hero. Jonah is also comical in this scene. He shows concern in his office, which Spidey mistakes as concern for him. Jonah is quick to disabuse him of this notion, pointing out how much it will cost to repair and replace everything. It's even funnier when we learn Jonah is secretly made up. He wanted to get rid of this stuff for years, and now the insurance company will pay for it. The police arrive, and the scorpion flees with Spidey in hot pursuit. 
but the combatant's gone, Jonah suddenly adopts the role of hero, posing for pictures and calling the duo yellow as they leave. The police don't fall for this, noting that Jonah has only become brave since they arrived. Jonah is basking in the glory until it's pointed out by a staff member that if Spider-Man fails, Jonah will be in danger again. Our peerless publisher plots a hastily planned holiday. There's something a bit off about all of this, tonally. Whilst it is undeniably fun, it's played more for laughs than I suspect it needs to be. Spider-Man fighting to protect a man he hates, Jonah, against a man who hates Jonah more than Spidey does, with Jonah being forced to accept the protection of a man he hates, but who is his only hope against a man who hates him equally, is dripping in drama. But this is played too much for comedy. Ditko's art is also looser and more scratchy than usual. Spider-Man is more in his element when the fight spills out over the rooftops. In this arena, the Scorpion doesn't really prove much of a match for our hero, which is really quite a disappointment. In issue 20, the Scorpion was a formidable adversary, knocking six bells out of Spider-Man and giving him quite the going over. Here, Spider-Man teases him as he does with every foe, and once he's got him over the Hudson River, it's all over for the Scorpion. Spider-Man easily captures him in his webbing and leaves him for the police without too much trouble. There's precious little to this fight. Lee's dialogue is funny and goes a long way to saving this, but I would have thought Ditko would have milked this for all it was worth instead of going for quite a simple wrap-up that makes the Scorpion seem like a B-lister. In a sad state of affairs, this is the way the character will be remembered going forward rather than the single-minded and dangerous foe he was in his first appearance. It's also hard to blame later creators for the decline of the Scorpion when his creators make him out to be a little threat in only his second appearance. The real meat of this issue is in the last two pages. Peter returns home and calls Betty. She was rushed home after the stress of the Scorpion's attack on the bugle, and Ned Leeds answers the phone. Peter's plaintive and whispered response of, Tell her. Tell her I called. is heartbreaking, and I think he pretty much realises it's over for them there and then. Superhero comics had, to my knowledge, never portrayed the disintegration of a relationship so compellingly before, and have really done it since. The last page sees Aunt May suffer a dizzy spell and fall to the floor. She hides this from Peter, worrying what would happen to him if something should happen to her. Overall, Spider-Man issue 29 is a game of two halves. The subplots are being set up wonderfully for future issues, with the cat burglaries, the scientific equipment being robbed, Peter, Betty, Ned, and Aunt May's illness, but the main plot is pretty weak given the setup. This should have been a really epic story, forcing Jonah to tackle his failure and own up to his responsibilities, whilst also featuring a duel to the death between Spider-Man and an adversary even stronger than he is. Instead, it's played for laughs when it should be dramatic. It's padded with extended fight scenes that aren't Ditko's best, and it never really catches fire. It's not in any way bad, more disappointing when looked at as part of the overall whole. As a single issue, though, it's still remarkably entertaining. Amazing Spider-Man issue 30 has a stunning noirish cover. The police and the fire brigade shine spotlights at Spider-Man as he tumbles back down a wall as a water tower explodes above him. A new figure called the Cat swings away as this happens. This is a very unusual cover. It's as if it was taken um, as a photograph from a fur distance away, and Spider-Man is quite small in the frame, as are all the other figures. The greys highlight the nighttime feel of the piece, and the eyes drawn to the spotlights. 
It's stunning stuff, simply in how different it is. We're used to the hero being large in the frame, normally engaged in a big action sequence. This is a big action sequence, for sure, but the distance we are viewing it from really makes it stand out as different to your usual superhero comic book cover. One can easily imagine this as being viewed through a shaky telephoto lens before being brought into sharper focus. The Claws of the Cat opens with a James Bond-style eyehole. Spider-Man hangs upside down, his back to us, as a man clad in green and brown runs from left to right. Floaty heads of Flash, Liz, Jonah, Ned, Betty, Peter and a masked man hover before us. Aunt May looks at us haughtily. I think she's supposed to be asleep, or dead, but because it's only a floaty head it looks like she's judging us. After some brief recapping of last issue, May is invited out by Anna Watson to go to a flick, so Spider-Man goes out cruising for pictures. Spider-Man is so preoccupied he completely misses a burglary by the figure known as the Cat. However, and this will come to bite him on the ass, as the victim is none other than J. Jonah Jameson. Jonah calls the police, but thinks, as he always does, that the problem will go away if he just throws money at it, and he offers $1,000 for information that will lead to the capture of the cat. This is a pretty decent opening, with the reveal that Jonah was robbed being a standout moment. Far more interesting, though, is what happens next. A gang of crooks attack a van transporting uranium derivatives. Spider-Man tries to stop them, but is rendered off-balance when the car takes a sudden turn. This is notable for two things. One, Stan Lee, in scripting the issue, makes a pretty serious error in establishing that these men are working for the cat. They aren't. In actuality, they are working for the master planner. And this is Ditko following up on the CD planted last issue, as well as setting up the next few issues. This is a significant shift in how comics were being written, and was fairly revolutionary for the time. Point number two, the van is said to be the property of Anthony Stark, a lovely little nod to the shared Marvel Universe. Why Stark is transporting radioactive uranium through the city in a nondescript van is not mentioned. Somehow the master planner's goons elude Spider-Man, because Spidey is momentarily distracted by an expositional news network report, copyright Michael Baylor, about Jonah's $1,000 reward. Spider-Man swings directly over to Jonah's apartment to tease him about having to give the reward to Spider-Man. This scene is quintessential Spider-Man, demonstrating his rather cruel sense of humour and his delight in sticking it to Jonah. Let's be honest, Jonah deserves this at this point. Between spider-chasing robots and scorpions, Jonah has thrown more than $1,000 down the drain, pursuing his irrational hatred of Spider-Man. It is far too cheap to buy new furniture or pay his employees what they're worth. Spider-Man seems to forget that he can't cash a check made out to Spider-Man, but the following scene where Jonah daydreams about the embarrassment he'll face if Jonah catches the cat is hysterical. To escape this fate, Jonah sends Foswell to investigate the cat. Spider-Man returns home, as tonight is May's apple pie night. I don't know when May has had time to bake this apple pie, as she's been up at the cinema all night with Anna Watson. Maybe Peter makes her stay up all night, and that's why she's so knackered. The next day, Peter leaves early to walk Betty to work, but bumps into Liz Allen. This is another great scene. Liz hasn't seen Peter since graduation and tells him that Flash is following her to see where she works. Can Peter distract him for old time's sake? Peter agrees. What's notable about this is Liz can barely look at Peter throughout the entire conversation, showing she still has romantic feelings for him, and she's very down on herself, telling Peter he doesn't have to pretend to be interested in her. Peter tries to tell her he's not pretending, but Liz brushes him off. This is a magnificent moment, and it's all in Stan's dialogue. 
Liz Allen ended up being one of the more complex and intriguing of Spider-Man's supporting cast, and this is an unusual and unpredictable coda to the character's appearance. That so important a person in Peter's life should be written out in such a quiet and unassuming way is nothing short of remarkable. But isn't that how life is? We go from seeing somebody every day to never seeing them at all. No drama, no big goodbyes. One day they're just gone, for whatever reasons, and the next it's years before we see them again. Liz would not appear in another Spider-Man boot for over 100 issues, where she would be revealed to be the stepsister of the Molten Man, a huge misstep that started Marvel down the path of there being no normal people in Peter's life at all. Flash is as big an asshole as ever, stalking Liz to find out where she works, presumably so he can rohypnol her and keep her tied up in his basement. In a quiet alleyway, Peter finally gets to punch Flash after taking the piss out of him so sarcastically, Flash probably didn't realise that was what was happening. Peter punches Flash to go after the cat, who he spies on a nearby rooftop. After donning his costume, he realises that it isn't the cat, merely a disgruntled employee wanting revenge on his employer for being fired. Spider-Man is remarkably pissy to the man he saves because he wanted the reward, but he returns to Flash before he awakens and tells him they knocked each other out. Flash is dumb enough to fall for this. Peter also makes up somewhere that Liz works and Flash falls for this as well. Peter then calls round at Betty's and she tells him Ned has asked her to marry him. Peter is angry and upset, almost proposes himself and plans to tell her he is Spider-Man. But when Betty reminds Peter about her brother, Peter relents and storms out. As he slams the door, Betty falls to the floor crying. It's Peter she loves. If only he could tell her what it is that he keeps forever bottled up inside. This is another great scene and an issue that is very much wrapping up loose ends before moving Peter on to college and into the next phase of his life. At the time, this was remarkable stuff. The hero of the strip got a girlfriend, be it Lois Lane or Iris West or Carol Ferris, and that girl stayed around. They didn't split up, and certainly not in as ugly or as final a fashion as this. This is a snotty, tear-filled breakup, dripping with emotion and things unsaid. It's a real breakup between real people, and as such, another superhero comic first. It doesn't paint Betty in a particularly good light, though, but she hasn't been portrayed as such for a while. She basically implies here that should Peter say he loves her, she'll ditch Ned without a thought, proving she's just been using Ned to make Peter jealous all along. And after this, she goes on to marry him, despite being in love with another man. Granted, this marriage won't happen for nearly a decade, so it's possible Betty had got over her feelings by that point, but this really isn't a good place to start a relationship. As Foswell, in patch disguise, continues his search, Peter is glad for the distraction of an armed robbery. This robbery is again the work of the master plan, and again Stan attributes it to the cat. These cock-ups are confusing, and I have to be honest, I would have no problem with Marvel fixing these mistakes, as it's distracting and annoying. Oddly, the 80s Marvel Tales reprints, which did correct other errors, such as Spider-Man not grounding himself in Amazing Spider-Man Annual Number 1, didn't correct this mistake, stating that they wanted these reprints to be historically accurate. I think that boat sailed, guys. The next few pages bring the various elements together. Patch gets a lead on a second story man who hasn't been around recently, and wouldn't you know it, it is that second story man who has decided to pull one last job before retiring. Peter, meanwhile, is oblivious to May's illness and runs away from the house when Betty rings. This brings all our players together for the finale and is a nice bit of plotting. Ditko excelled at bringing all his characters together in the final act. 
In another lovely touch, the cat isn't spotted by the police, or even Spider-Man, but by a regular guy who is suspicious of this new window washer. A dragnet is called, and Jonah is ecstatic to watch this on the news, as if the police catch him, he wouldn't have to pay the reward. However, Spider-Man arrives, causing Jonah conniptions, another great scene with funny dialogue. The final fight is really well executed. The cat is but a man, and no real match for Spider-Man, but he's blowing up a water tower and then shooting at Spidey certainly slows our hero down. When the police arrive on the rooftop, Spider-Man rather sensibly decides to not get caught in the crossfire, and a furious gun battle results in the cat being caught by the police. It's another well-choreographed fight by Ditko, especially the water tower explosion, and the use of spotlights when Spider-Man chases the cat over the rooftops. There's even a nice line in humour running through the issue, especially when the cat is arrested hiding in a chimney. The real payoff, though, is in the conclusion. Peter takes the photos he took of the cat's capture to the bugle, where he sees Betty. It's a morose ending to the issue, as in the final panel, Peter walks away from Betty, hands in pockets, shoulders slumped. Betty looks on, with her head down and in shadow. In between them both, pushing them apart, the spectre of Spider-Man. A great ending, almost a perfect Spider-Man story conclusion to a great issue. Even more so than the graduation issue, this feels like a wrapping up of the various elements of Peter's life before he goes to college. We see Liz for the last time, although readers won't have known this then. We split up Peter and Betty, and we keep dropping hints that all is not well with Aunt May. Would Stan and Steve do the unthinkable and kill May off, really ending this important chapter in Peter's life? At this point in the strip, anything was possible. Issue 31, If This Be My Destiny, has another abstract Ditko cover. A giant spider takes the central image and in each of its legs various scenes from the issue are displayed. The master planner's men gassing somebody, them fighting Spider-Man, Spider-Man swinging from a dirigible, Spider-Man trapped in a net, Spider-Man underwater and one of the master planner's goons also underwater. There's too much blank space for it to be one of the better covers of the era, but there's still enough here for you to chew on. As if to signify that this is a new beginning, the splash page, a great image of Spider-Man avoiding the gas guns of the Master Planner's gang, states that this is a new era in the life of Spider-Man is about to begin, and you shall live it with him. The issue opens with a Bond-worthy action sequence that Ditko manages to differentiate from other action scenes by having it take place on land, sea and earth. Spider-Man happens across the Master Planner's men stealing atomic devices from a nearby plant. They load the devices onto the helicopter and speed away, gloating that the plan was near perfect and went exactly as it should. This is, of course, if we discount the guard who nearly shot them and Spider-Man. The goons then execute phase two of their plan, dumping the stolen materials in the sea whilst dousing Spider-Man with their stun gas. This renders Spider-Man mute for once, and he scuppers the helicopter by tossing the broken door into the rotor blade. The helicopter plunges into the sea, and Spider-Man is stunned when the men don't surface. This is because, whoever the master planner is, he has an undersea base. Whilst thrilling the leader with a cinematic and exciting cold open, Ditko also picks up the plot threads of last issue whilst introducing a potential new adversary in the Master Planner. Ditko liked keeping his villains a secret and then reveal them to be nobodies, but this build-up has been plotted over a number of issues now, and to reveal it to be a complete unknown would be a massive cop-out. Still, that Ditko had this continue for so long and not end it with a massive reveal is also quite an unusual story technique for the times. Ditko was very much going for the slow burn, and this is followed through to the next page. 
Peter is off to register at college, but Aunt May is still having fainting spells. In contrast to others, Ditko has turned Spider-Man into a proper, ongoing narrative. The montage of Peter's registration day is humorous and well handled as Peter enrolls at Empire State University. There's a quick cameo from Flash who tells Peter to drop dead, but the drama really kicks in when Peter gets home. Before his stunned face, May collapses. Dr. Bromwell doesn't know what's wrong with her, but a stay in hospital is recommended. Ditko ladles these panels with the shading and foreboding shadow he's known for, especially the panel where Peter stays up all night, unable to sleep. Peter is burly cognizant of his first day at college, and the other students consider this to be Peter giving them the brush off. This continues throughout most of the issue, and it's amazing how little time is spent on the main plot, the master planner, and how much time is devoted to Peter and his problems. This is a massive contrast to the superior books of the time, even Marvel books, where action was emphasised at all costs. It's possible that this is but one of the elements that made the Spider-Man strip stand out above all the others, the amount of time it devoted to Peter Parker, the man under the mask. Back in these times, Clark Kent was the disguise, Bruce Wayne was burly a presence, and the Fantastic Four didn't really have other identities to speak of. And yet here was an issue of a superhero action comic aimed at a primarily young male audience that focused almost exclusively on Peter's first day at college and his problems in acclimatising due to his sick aunt. The Betty Brandt, Ned Leeds subplot is given lip service in that Betty hasn't answered Ned's proposal yet, but this is primarily Peter's issue. Of course, we can't discuss Amazing Spider-Man issue 31 without mentioning that this is the first appearance of Harry Osborn, Professor Warren, and, of course, Gwen Stacy. All three of these characters will go on to play a major role in the strip going forward, but the first appearance doesn't really engender any audience sympathy. Harry is a massive suck-up, cozying up to both Gwen and Flash, with the implication that Gwen and Harry went to the same high school. Gwen is immediately smitten by Peter, who she describes as not as husky as Flash, but brighter and better looking. And of the two, she's the least disagreeable until Peter brushes her off, without even looking at her. Ditko always had a problem with drawing drop-dead gorgeous people, his preferred approach being to portray normal faces, but Gwen is drawn as being a little bit more attractive than usual. She has large blue eyes, platinum blonde hair and quite a slinky figure, and Gwen's attraction to Peter is unusual, until we remember that Liz Allen was also attracted to Peter for his intelligence. It's also a nice note that Peter is considered more attractive than Flash. Peter started as a gawky, bespectacled, skinny nerd, and it's generally accepted that Peter only became more handsome when John Romita took over, but this isn't the case. Ditko has been giving Peter more defined muscle tone, better clothes, and longer hair for a few issues now, and given that this is Ditko, I doubt any of this was unintentional. Gwen seems very interested in Peter, and refers to the fact that he's the only boy she's met who hasn't given her a tumble. Whatever the hell a tumble is. Harry, for his part, seems to take an instant dislike to Peter, purely because Gwen seems smitten with him. A nice, subtle piece of characterisation, showing Harry already has a massive crush on Gwen. Flash, for his part, is as massive a jerk as he's always been, and he too seems put out that Gwen doesn't immediately fall for his charms. Flash and Harry's dislike of Peter seems to make them fast friends, and Flash is quick to emphasise his football-playing prowess with Gwen, mentioning how she's followed his high school football career quite closely. I don't recall us ever seeing Flash play football, or even mentioning that he's got a game, but whatever. Flash has also completely forgotten about Liz, which is probably the best thing that could happen as far as Liz is concerned. 
Harry and Flash apparently bond over the fact that they both hate squares, yet Harry has a magnificently dated 50s cornrows hairstyle, a shit-coloured brown suit, and a red bow tie. I'd take a look in the mirror before calling anyone a square, Harry. It does seem that Ditko is trying too hard to make Peter an outcast here, as well as making college feel too much like high school. It's fairly realistic that the first few college weeks do revolve around people trying to fit into their high school stereotypes, but college students quickly become their own people and develop other roles and friendships, and thankfully, this is what will happen to Peter. Still, all this soapy melodrama means it's an astonishing 17 pages in before the main plot kicks in. Foswell, in patch disguise, tells Spider-Man that he has picked up a lead that there is a robbery on PS6. He has no evidence to speak of and therefore can't go to the police, but Spider-Man could check it out. He does, and a minor fracas breaks out between he and the Master Planner's men. It's not one of the better action scenes, being a tad rushed, but it is notable for revealing that Spider-Man has created a mouth cover that allows him to breathe whilst filtering out the Planner's gas. This is something that would go away when Ditko left, that Peter created new gadgets specific to each adventure to help him out. The issue closes with a double cliffhanger, posing trouble for both Spider-Man and Peter. For Spider-Man, the mysterious Master Planner is annoyed that Spider-Man's interference has cost him dearly, and that, even though they've met before, the next time they meet will be the last. For Peter, two doctors reveal that Aunt May can't last much longer. Spider-Man was always a strip that emphasised that Peter Parker was the driving force behind the stories, and that this was a tale of his life and the life of a human being, and no issue to this point emphasises this more. This is an issue of Peter Parker that Spider-Man appears in, and as such it's one of the more daring, different and interesting issues of this late period Ditko era. The story is about Peter, his life, his problems, his allies and adversaries. The superhero stuff is relegated to a B-plot. It's also quite remarkable how little this issue really advances that main plot, concentrating instead on setting up Peter's new life. The Master Planner arc does take a step or two forward, as does the Ant May is Ill subplot, but this is all in service of the larger narrative that really kicks into high gear next issue. And this is where the issue scores. This is a remarkable example of how Lee and Ditko were making this strip into something quite different from other books on the stands. Attention was being paid to the setting up of future events, even if Lee wasn't always aware of it. And this later period issues are largely the template for not only Marvel comics going forward, but ultimately all comics going forward. Fans nowadays seem put out if a new comic or TV show doesn't have an arc of some kind that is meticulously planned in advance. And whilst these pretty clear elements of making it up as we go along are still present, Ditko clearly knew where he was going and what he was doing. In addition, look at how much happens in this issue, and how many characters appear, and how they all have distinct arcs and characterizations. More modern books can't cope with a few recurring characters, and large supporting cast seem very much to be a thing of the past. Note also how most of the drama stems from the everyday elements in Peter's life. The Spider-Man stuff's just there. Ned's proposal, May's health, Gwen as the new love interest, Flash as constant asshole, Harry as wannabe Flash, all of this revolves around Peter. Compare this to now, where Spider-Man is the central character, not Peter, and mourn what we've lost as comics have become more sophisticated. Issue 32 of Amazing Spider-Man is entitled Man on a Rampage. The cover has an inset shot of Aunt May with a caption that reads, With his Aunt May gravely ill in the hospital, Spider-Man fights as never before. 
This is punctuated with a scene of Spider-Man ripping the staircase from its moorings and kicking its support beams. Men hang for dear life as other men flee from an overturned car. The feel is very much that of a Spider-Man out of control. It's not, to be honest, one of Ditko's best compositions. The legs look odd, and Spider-Man's back positively ripples with muscle tone. The arms also look a little too long. Very quickly, we are introduced to the Master Planner in his underground base, and his monologue that Spider-Man's interference has cost him the radioactive minerals he so desperately craves. We also learn his true identity. Doctor Octopus. This is an incredibly off-hand reveal. After all, the build-up to the mystery of the Master Planner and Stan's incredible restraint in not blurting out on the cover something like You'll never guess the true identity of this issue's mysterious villain to so casually reveal that the Master Planner is really Doc Ock is either incredibly during or a massive dramatic misstep. Ock gives his men orders to continue to purloin some radioactive materials, and we cut to the Daily Bugle. Herein, we find Peter being callous to Betty, pretending that he doesn't care about her or Ned. Ned Leeds tries to calm Peter down, and Jonah, fed up with all this racket in what is supposed to be a place of work, tosses Peter out on his ear when his pictures prove to be not up to stuff. This is Peter's way of dealing with Betty. With a hatred of Spider-Man back with a vengeance, Peter decides having her be angry at him is the way forward. Then she can get on with her life and accept Ned's proposal. To more modernise, having Betty want nothing more than a man who comes home to his pipe, his slippers and his woman may seem terribly old-fashioned. But let's not discount A, the time that this was written, and B, Betty's life history. Thanks to her brother and her mother, a situation that will be retconned in Untold Tales of Spider-Man, Betty has lived quite an eventful life for one so young. That she wants a husband and a life free of drama is understandable. If she doesn't want drama, perhaps marrying an investigative journalist on the rebound isn't that smart of an idea, but Betty has been depicted as being quite flighty. Peter, for his part, thinks he will carry a torch for Betty forever. Peter heads over to hospital to visit Aunt May, where he is greeted by terrible news. May is ill because of an unknown radioactive particle in her blood. Peter is stunned when he recalls that this is all down to the blood transfusion he gave May back in issue 10. A lot of ink and pixels have been spilled in wondering if Ditko had this planned all along. Way back in issue 10, Peter was concerned about giving May a transfusion as he had no idea what it would do to her given his powers, and this could easily be read as foreshadowing. May's illnesses have also been getting steadily worse over time. To pay off something from that long ago, in an era where last month's comics were considered disposable, least of all those published over two years ago, is simply stunning forward planning if that's what this was. Even if Ditko didn't plan this at the time, it shows a remarkable attention to detail to call it back. I attribute all this to Ditko, lovely listener, not to slight Lee in any way, but Ditko has been plotting this stuff out for months now, so it's logical to assume that this is all him. Besides, Lee can't even remember what issue this happened in, offering a no prize to any reader that drops him a line telling him where they published this story. Peter loses it on the next page as he figures out that he may have caused the death of his surrogate mother just as he was partially responsible for the death of his father figure, and it is Ditko at his finest. Ditko portrayed sweaty panic and burly concealed rage better than any artist in the Silver Age, and Peter's palpable anger at his misfortune is not only stunningly relatable, but also remarkably human. Peter hits upon the idea of calling Kurt Connors for help, and after a flurry of phone calls, he finds that Connors has moved to New York. That was fortunate. 
Kurt tells Spider-Man that a new serum, ISO 36, is potent and may do the job. Spider-Man tells Connors to order it, cost be damned. Okay, let's pause a moment to marvel again at Ditko's plotting here. Dr. Octopus is after radioactive materials and has been for a number of issues. Suddenly, Spider-Man needs a radioactive material to save a loved one. Both are on a collision course without even realising it. This is how you plot a comic, people. Add in an appearance of another old friend, Kirk Connors, and we see how Ditko and Marvel in general utilise the old stories as springboards to new ones, yet, at least here, these aren't simple rehashes. When Ock hears about the ISO 36 arriving in town and sets his men after it, it's one of those great storytelling moments where all the different plot strands have been woven together wonderfully. Peter sets about making as much money as he can, pawning all of his scientific equipment, including the microscope his uncle bought him in Amazing Fantasy 15. This is a lovely touch, that the thing that his uncle got for him, that he treasured most of all, is what he needs to sell to save his aunt. This is perhaps the best callback in the story. If you recognise this, it adds some beautiful pathos to the story. If you don't recognise it, the scene still works. Later writers who forgot about this scene will also use the microscope for added emotion, but none of them are as subtle or as effective as this. Spider-Man takes the money to Connors and impresses Connors with his scientific know-how as they set about preparing for the arrival of the ISO 36. However, news reaches Spider-Man of its theft by the master planner, and he quickly swings off to locate it. The next few pages are frenetic. Spider-Man races to the bugle to see Fred Foswell, who he thinks may have a lead on the master planner. Witness Betty's burly concealed hatred of Spider-Man when he arrives at the bugle to ask where Foswell is. Spider-Man then races after Foswell and tells him if he hears anything about the Master Planner, he's to contact Spider-Man. In return, Spidey will give him the full details of his capturing the Master Planner. Spider-Man then doesn't even wait for a reply. Leaving poor Foswell stranded on a rooftop, he races off again, this time to raid every underworld den he knows of. Lee improves on Ditko's plotting here by making out that Spider-Man has been doing this for hours. Unfortunately, the HUD Spider-Man beats up in panel 6 of page 10 is the same HUD as in the previous three panels. I do feel a bit sorry for this guy if Spider-Man's been beating him up for four hours. As Spider-Man tries to find the Master Planner's base, Ditko heightens the tension by cutting to Aunt May, who slips into a coma, and Kirk Connors, who prepares his half of the serum whilst wondering if ISO 36 will even work. This adds another layer of jeopardy to the plot. Spider-Man may go through all of this, only for having it not even work when he gets it to Aunt May. Spider-Man locates the Master Planner's gang, more through luck than skill, it has to be said, and he beats on them all relentlessly as he interrogates them for information about the location of ISO 36. Interestingly, Stan doesn't write any quips or funny dialogue for Spider-Man here. It's all deadly serious and even threatening. This is a Spider-Man with nothing to lose and nothing to fear. He spots that the Master Planner's men seem to be swelling in number and that they are entering through a hidden door. He manages to leap in through the door before it can shut and follows the trail where he finds the ISO 36. It is, of course, a trap. Ark has taken this opportunity to rid himself of Spider-Man once and for all, but even he is unprepared for the ferocity with which Spider-Man is fighting. Ock decides to escape, but Spider-Man holds a beam at him that destroys the base's central support column and traps Spider-Man under some falling machinery. With Ock lost, presumed dead, the ISO 36 is just a few feet away, but Spider-Man can't get at it, thanks to being pinned down by the oppressive machinery. As the water starts to pour in, Spider-Man struggles valiantly, but futilely. Just when it counted the most, he's failed. A simply magnificent issue on every level, let down only 
by Spider-Man locating the Master Planner by sheer luck. In every other regard, this is a stunner. Masterfully plotted, this breaks every rule of serialised comics fiction of this time. It's not the beginning of a story building on the events of the past issue, nor is it the end of a story clearly being to be continued, but another chapter in the ongoing narrative that has been at play for a number of issues. Ditko's plotting is exemplary, for the most part, bringing characters and story strands all together perfectly for the finale yet to come. Ditko really does believe in punishing his main character, and the trials Peter is put through in this issue just continue to worsen as the story progresses. Just as he took the Green Goblin off the table in the Crime Master arc, Ditko here takes Dr. Octopus out of the picture, perhaps cleaning the decks for his upcoming departure from the strip. Whatever the reason, this is a great issue of a great series, and it's only not thought of higher because of what comes next. Amazing Spider-Man issue 33 has one of the single most iconic images in Spider-Man history. Hell, in comics history. The cover copy simply reads the final chapter, and Steve Ditko's excellent imagery is left to fill the cover and catch the eye. Spider-Man is trapped under a large machine as water fills the room around him. Despite being covered from head to toe in a full-body costume, and even then the reader can only see Spider-Man's head, right hand and left arm, Ditko still manages to capture the despondency and despair that Spider-Man is going through, simply through the magnificent use of body language. To be able to capture so much body language when using so little of the body is the work of a consummate artist. One of the best covers in history. The first page of the story is neither a splash nor an alternative cover. Instead, a brief summation of the story so far. This is a much better approach to recapping the story than in over-expository dialogue in the issue itself, and emphasises how Marvel were changing comics in the Silver Age. This wasn't a 10 or 12 page story, this was a 20 page epic that was itself the sequel to a 20 page epic that was building upon other events from other stories. Marvel was slowly building upon its own mythology. It's a pretty excellent recap, all things considered, telling us everything we need to know to read on while setting up a problem for later in the issue. Ox Henchman, as seen here, waiting for Spider-Man to escape from the room he's trapped in. The splash reads, The Final Chapter, one of the most thoroughly satisfying Spider-Man sagas you have ever thrilled to. Scripted and edited by Stan Lee, plotted and illustrated by Steve Ditko, boarded and lettered by Artie Simek, and read and enjoyed by you. The story picks up where it left off. Spider-Man remains trapped under a collapsed machine caused by the collapse of Dr. Octopus's underwater base, the serum he needs just out of reach. I don't get how it was out of reach, given he has web shooters, but whatever. As Stan points out in the dialogue for last issue, even if he'd webbed it towards himself, what would he do then? He'd still be trapped and unable to move. Next is one of the most well-known and dramatically executed sequences of art to ever appear in the comics medium. Spider-Man is trapped and giving in to despair, the weight he carries too heavy for his teenage frame to handle, the problems he faces insurmountable as more and more is placed before him as if testing his resolve. And that's just the subtext. As he strains and struggles against his burden, the faces of May and Ben Parker flash before his eyes, and Spider-Man makes the ultimate decision to not give up. He strains and strains with every fibre of his being, slowly inch by inch, gaining purchase, moving himself into position to be able to use his leverage to push the weight off his back. Stan's dialogue is a tad overwrought by today's standards and probably completely unnecessary, but it works in selling the moment. Art-wise, though, this is Ditko's finest hour. 
Look at his composition of panels. On page two, where Spider-Man is hemmed in by the machinery, the panels are a standard three-panel grid across the page for six panels, representing two-thirds of the page. Ditko draws the panels to be full, as if they are straining to keep Spider-Man in, giving the reader a claustrophobic feel similar to what the character is feeling. He opens this up to one panel, in the bottom third, as Spider-Man has his hero's resolve moment. His steadfast refusal to give in is quintessential Spider-Man. Ditko's water droplets here, small and infrequent, are drawn like huge weights forcing Spider-Man down. This page alone shows Ditko's absolute mastery of the form, putting him in Eisner's league, but it just gets better as it goes along. On page three, Ditko has a six-panel page. The top two panels are long but compressed as Spider-Man begins his Herculean task and he is shown to be very small in the panel, giving the reader the scope of his undertaking. Panels three and four are two large square boxes, symbolically rising as Spider-Man manages to push his arms, although they are still bent at the elbow. Then, the final two panels longer still, as Spider-Man straightens his arms, pushing the machinery up. Ditko has the water droplets become bigger still on page four, this time a standard three-panel grid, followed by a three-quarter length panel, as Spider-Man manages to crawl onto his knees and gets a foot onto the floor underneath him. Finally, the piece de resistance, a full-page splash of Spider-Man, exhausted but unbeaten, pushing with all his might. One final triumphant flourish sees the machinery that pinned him being hurled aside. An absolutely stunning example of sequential comics art. If this isn't taught in art classes across the world, it should be. Sadly, the lesson learned from this is that you can pad out moments for dramatic effect rather than looking at what Ditko was truly accomplishing here. Shattered, Spider-Man allows himself to be carried away by the water that had built up from droplets to a steady flow to a torrent over the last few pages. Ditko's water looks like it's alive as it sweeps Spider-Man away, but as we know from the opening page, there are still henchmen waiting for him. Ditko's body language conveys how tired Spider-Man is as he refuses to let these men stand between him and his only living relative, and he fights on as ox henchmen swarm around him. Dazed, fatigued beyond measure, Spider-Man refuses to yield, fighting to the last man, unaware that he continues to fight when all others have fallen. Shaking, Spider-Man retrieves the serum and makes his way out of the hidden base. I've got to say, even as a kid, I didn't understand how letting himself get beat up would help Spider-Man recover, especially as it seems to make him more stunned, almost concussed. He doesn't even remember punching the henchman's lights out. The panels close in on Spider-Man here so we don't see it when it actually happened. So the final reveal, Spider-Man still punching and then all the men out cold on the floor, is well done and symbolic of how exhausted he is. The reader is never allowed to forget that even though this issue is Spider-Man heavy, the story is about Peter. Ditko's use of shading on page 11 as Spider-Man emerges from the tunnels is exquisite. Ditko would end a lot of issues with Spider-Man walking alone in the darkness, giving the strip a very melancholic feel, as befits its crime noir leanings. Having it in the middle of an issue was surprising, but appropriate. Spider-Man then makes his way to Dr. Kurt Connors, who is analysing the serum on Spider-Man's own blood, the blood that caused Aunt May's condition in the first place. All looks well, and Spider-Man rushes the serum over to the hospital. With the transfusion started, all Spider-Man can do is wait. Spider-Man again shows his intelligence here, another staple of the Ditko era. By switching out May's blood for his own blood, he manages to negate any awkward questions about who the serum is for. He never told Connors, and thus isn't jeopardising his secret ID. 
He also asks Connors to call ahead to let the hospital know that he's coming, a shrewd move as they are more likely to believe it from a man with Connor's reputation. Remember, nobody but Spider-Man and his family know that he was the lizard thanks to Spidey. True, Spider-Man probably raised a few eyebrows showing up with an antidote for an old woman who means nothing to him, but it's not like Peter could show up with it. Spider-Man fills in his time taking some photos of the unconscious men for the money and calls reporter Frederick Foswell at the bugle. Foswell arrives with the police and, hidden away, Spider-Man takes a few more snaps. This isn't the first time Peter has faked the news to earn some cash and it's undeniably morally questionable. As with the Sandman story in issue 4, he isn't actually faking the events. They did happen as he shows them, but not quite when he took the photos. Still, many years later, Peter would be fired by Jonah for breaching journalistic ethics for doing this very thing. There's a good bit of wrap-up as Spider-Man calls Foswell, as he promised, to give him the story. And it's mentioned that Ock is nowhere to be found, but presumed dead. Why the cop telling Foswell this calls him Charlie when his name is Fred is a mystery yet to be solved. The Bugle scenes are well done, and it's nice to see some supporting cast members as the nature of this story means we never get to see Peter at college this month. Even in an issue as heavy as this one, Stan manages to derive some humour from the story. Betty asks Jonah if he's okay, as he's smiling. This gag has been made before. All the Bugle employees think Jonah looks worse when he smiles than when he's grumpy. Peter brushes Betty off, and there's another nice callback to issue 10, where Betty's brother Bennett was killed. In her imagination, Betty sees Peter being killed in Bennett's place. This is another great example of Ditko using continuity to add to a story. This also adds more depth to Betty's stance. Peter is remarkably nonchalant about the bruises and cuts to his face, brushing it off as part of the job. This is a far more mature Peter here than ever before, and a truly selfless man. Nothing he has done has been for himself. It's all been for love of family. It feels very much like a full stop on Peter's teenage years, and the embracing of Peter's maturity and growth as he leaves those teenage years behind. Peter playing hardball with Jonah and getting a substantial paycheck for his work is also a demonstration of Peter's growth. He's not the kid he used to be, and in this case Peter does need a hell of a lot of money to pay May's medical bills. He's not taking Jonah's crap today, and after all he's been through, who can blame him? This is also the first time Peter is seen really taking his job as photographer seriously enough to command top dollar for his work. Interestingly, Peter does think about getting his microscope and other equipment back from the pawn shop, as well as money for May's expenses. Peter finally negotiates a fee of $100 a picture, and given how many pictures he has, that must end up being around $1,000. Jonah thinks he would have paid double that amount. It's also very much a sign of the times that Peter could pay the medical bills and get his equipment back for less than a grand. Peter heads to the hospital to check on May, and the prognosis is positive. The doctor checks Peter over and diagnoses him as being on the verge of total and complete exhaustion. Fortunately, Peter took his Spider-Man costume off somewhere and isn't wearing it under his clothes, or that would have been the end of his secret. Peter dodges any questions about why Spider-Man would be helping a sick old lady, and after promising the Doctor that he'll get some rest, he limps home, alone. The ending is again typical Spider-Man. Yes, he's won, but at a price. Aunt May awakens, but all is still not well. She's still weak, able only to acknowledge Peter is there before he has to leave. There are no miraculous endings where May is just suddenly okay. The final four panels perfectly demonstrate what it was about Spider-Man that I loved as a kid. The Doctor closes the blinds in May's room and we see Peter hobbling away outside. Yes, Peter has stood up to Jonah, but he's taken a hell of a beating, and the ending is in no way celebratory. Its ambiguity is part of the reason it's so memorable. 
The blinds finally close, leaving May's room in darkness, and Peter Parker, still a man, who walks alone. What's quite remarkable about this story, one of the best Spider-Man issues ever, is that there's an awful lot of depth to it. Ditko and Lee touch upon themes of family loyalty, determination, and a dogmatic refusal to give up, even in the face of great hardship. Spider-Man has a literal weight on his shoulders, a metaphorical examination of the trials he is going through in life, and this literal example of feeling the weight of life crushing you, only to never give in, is central to Spider-Man's appeal as a character. Some of this issue, as with the death of Gwen Stacy many years later, has been parodied, homaged, and outright ripped off many times over the years, but not to the issue's detriment. Much like Goldfinger was to Bond, this features so many of the tropes of a great Spider-Man story, it's no wonder people return to it again and again over the years. But just like Goldfinger, whilst the homages may have their charms, the original still holds up. Just because it's so damn good. Also remarkable about this issue is that it could be very easily read as Ditko's full stop to the character, and you can even read it as a final issue if you so desire. There is nowhere really for Spider-Man to go after this that isn't a rehash of what has gone before, and certainly Ditko wouldn't top it. Although there are five issues left of Ditko's run, none of them would reach these heights, and he would actually leave with a whimper rather than a bang. Ditko's run would continue with return visits from Craven and the Molten Man, hardly the cream of the crop, villain-wise, and his final three issues would be decidedly subpar compared to this and earlier stories. Ditko like Spider-Man in this issue, had started to feel the weight crushing him, and, like his fictional creation, he too would free himself from the pressure. But that's for next time. We'll take a short break, and I'll return with some emails in a moment. Take the Earth's mightiest heroes, each an invincible champion of justice, and band them together to assemble the legendary Justice League of America. For 261 issues and three annuals, the DC Universe was defended from threats on Earth and beyond by this legendary team. Operating from a cave in Happy Harbor to a satellite orbiting 22,300 miles above the Earth to uh, Detroit, Justice's First Dawn, a classic Justice League of America podcast, will follow the League through all their evolutions. Please join your host, Mike Peacock, as I seek to cover all of the issues of the classic pre-crisis Justice League of America series. Through the magic of the JLA transporter, each issue will be randomized, with special episodes covering a complete story arc if needed. Along with the issue coverage, we shall also look at what the then-current members of the Justice League were up to in solo appearances in other comics for the JLA cover month issue. So do not hesitate to activate your JLA signal device for Justice's First Dawn, a classic Justice League of America podcast on classicjla.podbean.com or by subscribing through iTunes. And we're back for the email feedback part of the show. Um, got a couple of, only a couple of emails this time. Come on, people. Wake up. Our first email from Derek Crabb, who simply said, I really enjoyed listening to your coverage of the return of Starbuck on Palace. Derek Crabb hosts the Fan Holes podcast, which is pop culture for the fans, by the fans, and the history of comics on film. And, you know, maybe me and Derek will be arranging something in the future. That'd be fun. Uh, the only other email I got 
about a palace, so those are all Hey Kids comics emails, I need to skip those, don't I? was from Jason Trenner, which was called Swords, Sandals and Swearing. Hey Andy, love the episode covering the first two seasons of The Spartacus Show. It's a show I'd vaguely heard of, but never watched. Sounded to me like it was an impressive show, and amazing how they worked to recover from what happened with the first actor to play Spartacus. I look forward to the episode covering the rest of the show to hit the sands. Uh, internet. Well, thank you, Jason. Uh, you were the only person to feedback on the Spartacus show, so I don't even know if anybody else liked it. But if you did, good, because I enjoyed doing that one. And ultimately, that's what's important, isn't it? Uh, I have noticed as well that what a lot of other podcasters have started doing, such as Shag Matthews and, and Michael Mayle, is actually respond to feedback that is left on the social medias and Twitters and, and all that other youth-orientated stuff. Uh, so we're going to give that a go. The reason we don't traditionally do this is, uh, quite frankly, I forget about it. And it's sometimes such a long time in between recording episodes and recording the next episode that trying to find the threads about it is quite difficult. But this time, I actually did some, some forward planning and took print screens of the whole thing. Um, I don't recall anyone saying anything on Twitter, and I haven't checked the iTunes reviews. Although if you want to leave an iTunes review, that would be great. But Chuck Rodriguez... Uh, face-backed, face-backed, or Facebook-fed-back, which I suppose is a good thing, uh, saying he enjoyed it, so thank you very much, Chuck. And on the Facebook page on the Two Tree Freaks website, Chag Matthews, Greg Barr, Gord Tolton, Brian Hughes, Robert McDonald, Jared Reitman, uh, and Logan Garrett all fed back uh, about the show. Only a couple of them actually said they listened at that point, but I hope everybody enjoyed it if they did listen, so that's very much appreciated if those people fed back there. We'll, we'll see how that goes in the future and see if we can get any more feedback that way, rather than just the traditional email. Although, I'll be honest, I do still prefer emails, but that's just me. Anyway, next time, uh, unlike most Palace episodes, I can actually tell you what I'm doing next time, because we recorded it ages ago. It's the 50th episode of the Palace of Glittering Delights, and Michael Bailey and I will be yakking all over Sam Raimi's first Spider-Man movie. Which seems quite appropriate, given that Spider-Man will be in theatres, stealing Captain America's shield in Civil War. See you next time. Bye-bye.